All right, we are recording. Good morning. I believe today is February 18th. It is. Um, and we're reading a wonderful book today, and I'm going to toss it over to my compatriot, Adrian. Good morning to you too, Vince. I'm Adrian Calvin. This is the Book Cult Podcast. Uh, today we're going to be reading and checking out William Hope Hodgson's Hodgson's 1908 book, The House on the Borderland. It's a really interesting book, and it's couched as a manuscript, a found manuscript. So there's an intro from the author, and it's signed by the author himself, and then it tells about this manuscript that he finds, which makes it a bit cyclical. Um, so do you want to tell us a little bit more about the manuscript? Yeah, so you you look at this document, you open it up, and the, there's this little sentence before the chapters, and it says, from a manuscript discovered in 1877 by Messer Tonneson and Berregger, there's a lot of consonants here, I'm sorry, Berregernog, in the ruins to the south of this village in Ireland. Um, so he says that this is a manuscript he found along with his own notes. When you read things that well, it makes you sound really smart. I, yes. <laughs> 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 yes. Um, anyway, there's a, a nice little author's introduction to the manuscript. Normally, we read the first sentence of the book, but yes. the first sentence of the chapter here is not very good, and I don't really consider it the first sentence of the book. I think the first sentence is actually in the author's introduction. Many are the hours in which I have pondered upon the story that is set forth in the following pages. And I think turned toward that idea of found and being immersive, this starts you out on that track. Mm. Yeah, that's helpful. And later on in that same introduction, he says, A small book it is, but thick, and all save the last few pages filled with a quaint but legible handwriting and writ very close. Um, so he's talking about this book that they will end up finding. We'll talk a little bit more about that later, but... Um, yeah, this is sort of one. This is the thing that the this entire story will revolve around is this found document. Before we hop into the text, I want to talk a little bit about the chapters. Mm. The chapters are what I think kind of hilariously titled. Um, I don't know if you were reading this this at the time if you would find them comical, but there, there's chapters such as the finding of the manuscript, which we're going to read today. Guess what happens in that chapter? Ooh, I don't know. It's hard. There's a chapter called the swine things. <laughs> Foreshadowing. Ooh. There's a chapter called The Attack. Ah. Adrian, do you remember what the chapter after The Attack is called? I don't. The after The Attack. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, they're very heavy-handed <laughs> with the, the chapter titles, which is good because I think there's some foreshadowing here. Like, I know there's going to be a green star. I know there's going to be celestial globes. I don't know exactly what that means, mm. but I know that that's coming. So that, that changes it a little bit and makes it it gives it some sort of quality, which I think we'll be able to reflect upon more after we finish reading this. Right. And in meetings, they always say to, or even in essays, they tell you to say what you're going to say and then say it and then recap it. And so I think that kind of serves that purpose, right? Like he's doing that? Yeah. These really simplistic kind of titles. Anyway, let's hop into the text. So uh, subtlety is a big one here. <laughs> um, Vince hates the first sentence of this chapter, so we're not going to read it because we're going to make him happy. We can read it to show how bad it is. <laughs> Now I feel like we have to. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> right. right away in the west of Ireland lies a tiny little hamlet called Creighton. Yeah, that, that, that doesn't tell me anything. It's just boring. It's, yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm sorry. 
I accept your apology. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so we should mention that there are two men, which um, Vince did a really nice job reading both their names. So you should know those. <laughs> and they are going on a fishing trip. I believe they're professional friends. And so they hear about this place, which is semi-remote, um, but still has some civilization. And they're going there to do some hardcore fishing. And they're going to a river. Back to the book. I have said that the river is without name. I may add that no map that I have hitherto consulted has shown either village or stream. They seem to have entirely escaped observation. Indeed, they might never exist for all that the average guide tells one. Possibly, this can be partly accounted for by the fact that the nearest railway station, Ardrin, is some 40 miles distant. So we have to remember at this time that uh, things like cars and simple transportation like easily accessible transportation all everywhere Do cars exist uh good question what is the model t we can look that up we'll um toss that in later yeah but either way transportation is just not as simple as it used to be so something being 40 miles from the nearest rail line is um a significant thing like this, they walked here probably yes and it took them a while so yeah just gives you a little bit of an idea of the isolation of the place that they're going to this reminds me a lot of the willows in that there's this two dudes going camping in a place that is beyond civilization. Right. Um, so there, that maybe was more significant during this time period or was representative of something greater that we don't fully understand today. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's, that's a theme I'm noticing in a lot of the works we're looking at from this time period. Totally. Yes. And just another fun little quip, which reminds me of the willows. Tonneson had got the stove lit now and was biddy was biddy wow was busy cutting slices of bacon into the frying pan and that just uh that reminds me of the moment when the willow in the willows when the main character wakes up and the swede is cooking him bacon the morning after things have actually gone sideways um so i just kind of enjoyed that now i want to point out here that the reason they're camping there's there's a little village close to them and they say they could stay at the inn however they don't want to because they don't want to sleep close to irish people Right. They they think the inn's dirty, full of grungy Irish people, and they think sleeping outside would be better. Right. And then they have this like little conversation how they're afraid Irish people are gonna steal all their things in the night. Oh yeah, I do remember that. Um but we'll we'll talk more about that later. Right on. It's my favorite theme. So they've set up the uh they've got their tent set up, doing a little bit of camping. Quote It was evident, I reflected as I went toward the tent, that the inhabitants of these few huts in the wilderness did not know a word of English. And when I told Tonneson, he remarked that he was aware of the fact, and more, that it was not at all uncommon in this part of the country, where the people often lived and died in their isolated hamlets without ever coming into contact with the outside world. So this is interesting because it's hard to sort out what's um, racism and what's just straight up isolation, like these are just isolated rural people um, it, who live a different lifestyle. It, it's hard to tell... Um, how much he's spinning this and how right. much there's just, cause we don't actually know if at this time, like this was a real, this just happened. Yeah. Um, but he definitely describes them as being somewhat less than him. he, he looks down on these people yeah. for sure. Uh, and then they, they do some fishing. So back to the book during the day, we fished happily working steadily upstream by evening. We had one of the prettiest creels of fish that I had seen for a long while. So that was cool. I, I like to look up words that I don't know. And I had assumed that a creel would be some sort of like fishing line with all the fish suspended from their gills from it. It actually turns out that it's a traditional wicker basket, which um, people who are hunters and trappers use to keep their prey. 
So I thought that was cool to know. I wanted to point out here too that often when fishing, in my experience, it seems that the best places to fish are the furthest away from people. Right. Because environmentally that area is less damaged, less like movement is going through that stream so the fish can grow unperturbed. Right. So even today, if you want to find a, like an amazing place to fish, you're going to be traveling pretty far. Right. And I, I also think probably, you know, fish are just, they're probably not used to people in yeah. these areas. So they don't know to be afraid. Of hooks. Yeah. Um, but then it's also interesting that they, they want a certain amount of infrastructure because mm-hmm. they're not, they didn't, they're not up for like a, a straight up expedition. Where these, these guys aren't as like outdoor survival as the Swede was. Right. Yeah. They're just... They want some good fish and they're going as far as they have to, to kind of get access to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they're following the river and then the river disappears. And so they think, Oh, maybe it comes up later. And so they start tearing off into the woods. They can't really find anything. And then they hear, they see this haze, this beautiful, like haze, like spray, which is radiating from a part of the forest. And he can hear the sound of a waterfall. And eventually they enter this sort of like ancient abandoned um, garden. So though not dark enough to hide from me the fact that many of the trees were fruit trees and that here and there one could trace indistinctly signs of a long departed cultivation. So he's looking around and he's seeing that this used to be something that was cared for at one time, but it's not anymore. And that decrepitude, I think, is a nice um, foreshadowing of something that's going to happen. So back to the book, what a wild place it was, so dismal and somber. Somehow, as we went forward, a sense of the silent loneliness and desertion of the old garden grew upon me, and I felt shivery. One could imagine things lurking among the tangled bushes, while in the very air of the place there seemed something uncanny. I think Tonneson was conscious of this also, though he said nothing. I think it's interesting to hear how the idea of ruins mm. being something that are unwelcoming, that there's humans place some sort of importance on things other people have owned. And there's like a feeling of con- like connection. Like if you have your grandfather's pocket knife, mm. you like maybe like connect that to that person. Mm. And walking through ruins, you know someone did something here. Mm. You know there was something going on here, but you know it's not there any longer. Right. Um, Which I think helps build the fear. Mm. Like in general, humans are scared. Like they saw like something happened, something didn't go right. Right. Yeah. Well, I also think it represents the collapse of order. Mm. Right. That as human beings, when you build a structure and you have a structured life around that building um there's a there's a sense of order and solitude um solace from nature yeah in a way like you're you're building this capsule of order um and so when you see ruins you can see that eroded exactly right it's a human order that's eroded and fallen away collapsed and i think there's something frightening about that to us to realize that like here is somewhere that humans failed good point um so they cruise onward and eventually they find this waterfall which is in a giant pit so this makes me think of the um south american cenote which are these big um they actually are underground lakes i believe and this is a river so it's not exactly the same but it's a really interesting image because they're in this forest and then the bottom like the ground just drops away like a giant sinkhole so here we go back to the book 
For quite a minute, we stood in silence, staring in bewilderment at the sight. Then my friend went forward cautiously to the edge of the abyss. I followed, and together we looked down through a boil of spray at a monster cataract of frothing water that burst, spouting, from the side of the chasm nearly a hundred feet below. So this is pretty impressive. This is a huge thing to just sort of chance upon. There has to be something in humans, whether it's cultural or biological, to have certain places in nature that seem special. Mm. Like if this book was set just in the brambles, just in the woods, it would be the different. Brambles. Like by having it in this naturally special place, right? somehow communicates to us, the readers, and I guess the people in the story, that this is, this is a place of special importance. Mm. And like people have concentrated here for some reason. Right. Um, I want to talk about the river. Um, the underground river. I was doing some research on the underground river too, um, just because it seemed like, like it felt weird. I don't think about underground rivers often. Right. Um, so I was looking up instances of this in other works. And one of the most famous ones is in Dante's Inferno. Right. When Dante's, you know, going through and he crosses, uh, the underground river with Chiron. The river sticks. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, so underground rivers do have a precedent in, is Dante's Inferno horror? I guess it's scary. I don't know if it's, it's spooky. Horror. It's kind yeah. of spooky. I, I think that's more of like a religious text, honestly. but it's still spooky. Yeah, that's it, not. That's not what it was for. I think at this time period, though, if you're like William Hope Hodgson's, mm. you're looking to that. Yes, I think it's a literary precedent for a yeah. lot of the imagery that he's working on. Um, I think the the idea of an underground river as the as a dividing, the dividing line between underworld and real world. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess because rivers are always dividing on. things too. Sure. Like in the Rubicon. Right. Um, so let's cross the Rubicon and find out what's going on in the text. Right on. So um, they're derping around in these ruins and they get separated a little bit as they're wandering around. And then Tonneson starts to call to the author. So here we go back to the book. I reached the crumbled wall and climbed round. There I found Tonneson, standing within a small excavation that he had made among the debris. It does have the accent. He was brushing the dirt from something that looked like a book, much crumpled and dilapidated, and opening his mouth every second or two to bellow my name. As soon as he saw that I had come, he handed his prize to me, telling me to put it into my satchel so as to protect it from the damp while he continued his explorations. So, this is the manuscript, and... I think one of the interesting things, something that really caught my eye is they, they find this book, but then the author notes in the next paragraph, curiously enough, the book was fairly dry, which I attributed to its having been so securely buried among the ruins. Now, this is interesting because they're right next to a waterfall and the book is buried so well that it never gets wet. It's not wet at all, despite the fact that it's just sitting next to this giant smashing waterfall and yet Tonneson just wanders over and digs it out of the ground and finds it instantly so the question is how does that happen does the book have some kind of mystical power by which it calls him to it see we were talking about this before uh we started recording mm. and as soon as adrian brought it up i was thinking oh Tonneson, foul play mm. he's in league with the book uh oh um and i was like oh i don't trust him anymore right um but it i didn't we're going to find out. I'm, I'm not sure about this guy. Yeah. 
See, it, it makes me think of Isildur from um, Lord of the Rings, where he's just... Which he's, one's he? Um, so he is the guy who cuts the ring from Sauron's hand. A long time ago. Yes. Okay. He's the sort of ancient... He's Aragorn's forefather. Okay. And um, in doing that, he then keeps the ring for himself. He's supposed to have destroyed it, but he says, no, I'm going to keep the weapon of the enemy to destroy the enemy with. Smart. Of course. So um, he's carrying it, and it eventually betrays him to his death. And so what I think that indicates is that... The, is that I hope that's not foreshadowing. I don't want anything <laughs> bad to happen to Tonneson. <laughs> Tonneson's doomed. Um, but yeah, I wonder if this artifact doesn't have power because it. I think that's a common theme. You know, especially in, if we want to talk about H.P. Lovecraft, the Necronomicon, which is the... the is a powerful tone. object in and of itself. Exactly. I, wonder, I, I don't know. I, I, we haven't read the whole book, so we don't know. Right. Um, but I wonder... This book, I get the impression right now, mm. has no power beyond communicating something mm. like that's its only power is it's able to it's just a record yeah yeah well we're gonna find out we, we certainly are <laughs> um so just to give you an idea of what they're feeling at this point back to the book and i asked tonison what he thought of the place i told him that i didn't like it and that the sooner we were out of here the better i should be pleased and that just reminds me of the moment in the willows when um both the Swede and the main character agree that really they should leave. Um, but then everything just goes totally sideways from there. And frankly, I kind of suspect that's what's about to happen here. So the book, they're, they're walking around on this kind of rock precipice over the chasm. That's where the ruins are. And they go down inside this chasm, this cataract in the earth. Um, and they, they hear some sort of wailing and screaming. And I, I honestly laughed when I read this because they described the shrieking as man pig, human, a human pig squeal, right. which I, I don't know what that sounds like. And I don't know if I, if I heard it, I would be able to identify as a man pig squeal, but they do hear this and they get spooked and they run away. Right. Um, and then, so they, they get back to their camp and they're like, Ooh, that was weird. And then Tonneson's like, Oh, Hey, Hey dude, let's read the manuscript. Will you read it to me? Mm. And then that's, that's how this story starts. And I really, I liked that part, what the author did there. Cause I think it's him acknowledging campfire stories, right? Like they're out in the woods. It's a little spooky. There's mm. these weird Irish people all over the mm. place. Um, and they're going to read like, they're going to read what they found as a found manuscript, but it's basically a ghost story. Right. Um, so I, I, I enjoyed that. Yeah. I think it ties it into something. It ties it into a practice that these people have that, um, could make it seem more real for the reader. So if it's just this kind of fantastical story, and this story gets pretty fantastical, frankly, um, it, he's he's asking you to believe a lot. Mm -hmm. And so he's using a variety of devices to help you suspend your disbelief. And one of them is the sort of multi-layered use of manuscript and other characters. So we started off with an intro from Mr. Hodgson in which he talks about this book that he has. And then you start reading in the book and in the book, the first thing you hear is about other characters that then go find that same book. Mm -hmm. So there's this kind of multi-layered separation, which I feel like helps you actually to get into the story. It, it steps you through the, the disbelief. Exactly. Into a place where you could find yourself in the situation also. Right. So when I was trying to examine this book, I, I asked myself, what does the author use to create fear? Mm. Cause in this, I believe, it's my understanding that in this genre, you want to make the reader feel scared. Yes. 
So um, how does he do that? And I think you hit the nail on the head with his idea of immersion. There's all these layers and he's uses these layers to slowly slide you in to being the protagonist. So he does that with the intro. He does that with the manuscript. Um, he also does that with the partner. Mm. I think like similar in the willows, they have the dyad where there's the Swede and the protagonist right here. They have whatever the main character's name is. Um, whatever. <laughs> such a good job reading it. <laughs> um, and Tonneson. Yeah. Um, Tonneson makes the things that progress the story. He finds the manuscript. He wants to explore the waterfall. Mm. Um, he tells the author to read the manuscript. He's the other person. Um, and right. he's pulling you exactly. through the story, even if you don't want to go. Yeah. So that brings up a couple things. Um, it's not your will that's driving you through this narrative. You're being pulled along, as you said. And Jordan Peterson notes that psychologically, the same it it activates different systems of your brain to engage with something by choice than to be, say, pursued by something unwillingly. So in people who have agoraphobia, um, if they just see an elevator, they're they're afraid of spaces essentially. So if they encounter an elevator and they run away, that activates a different neurological path than if they choose to face the elevator um, of their own accord. Do you think fear can be set up to be, how do I, how do I want to say this? Do you think there could be a recipe for fear that then could be easily replicated multiple times? Like, could you give a, a computer a system of rules and have it just poop out scary stories? Like, could you make an algorithm that produces frightening tales? And whenever humans read it or hear it, it just is always scary. I mean, I think that there are, so yes, um, the question is why can you do that? And it's, I think there are multiple things. There's, there's a variety of ways that things can be scary. Um, so visually, or there's certain sounds or there's certain ways of timing. But there's like, like certain sensation buttons totally. you can push Absolutely. that are always going to result in fear. Yeah. I think you could eventually like desensitize. Say, you could use machine learning to kind of produce a map of what a scary story is. And then mm. you could just map on words. Yeah. Hmm. Well, let's talk about some of those themes. So the computers of the future know what to uh, <laughs> talk about. And the second thing we want to talk about is Irish people. So yeah. future supercomputers take note. Um, <laughs> if you are doing it in the style of Hodgson's yeah. Hodgson, 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 include Irish people Hodgson. because according to him, uh, Irish people are creepy. Uh, they're backward. Yes. They don't know English. Um, they just stare at you. Um, and they, I think so what I'm getting to is I think he uses the idea of people from somewhere else that right. do things different than civilized people, um, to create a sense of fear and confusing that people can relate to. Yes. I think this is a common theme in literature from this time that the other is presented as scary. The unknown is presented as scary. So as soon as you step out of the bounds of civilization, you are in grave danger because the rest of the world is not civilized. It's something lower. So he talks about this by the, when they're camping, they're afraid the <laughs> Irish mud people right. are going to come steal their stuff. Right. Um, when he tries to talk to them, they completely ignore him. Yeah. Um, but then it, by the end, he kind of like resolves like, Oh, they're okay. They like, they prayed for us. Um, he thinks we believe. <laughs> he believes they put Irish blessings upon him. Um, right. Well, I think this, um, 
and they're even they even present themselves as these kind of heroic figures right because they go out and they fish and they bring they they keep i believe the words are that they keep some choice fish for themselves and then they give the rest oh so generously to the poor mud bespattered irish people and so they're it's a really kind of like colonial white hero savior kind of thing that they just they're on vacation and they happen to uplift these poor irish people by giving to them be fish fair they're so like thankful eco or not ecotourism like uh ecotourism um there's a tight like advocacy you know advocacy uh, like working tourism is like a thing uh-huh. where you go and like volunteer in a library in some other country right i so we still do that sure yeah but I, it's portrayed in a particular way here yeah which i think indicates something about the times Ooh. <laughs> all right last but not least <laughs> all right generally fear is created in his prose by creating suspenseful moments mm. so the the going into this kind of strange place is a little tense like right. i think the author is a little scared when they're examining the ruins mm. and seeing something that's been decrepit that creates a sense of like oh something could go wrong right um when the rubble is falling and he hears his friend shouting for him mm-hmm He's scared. He thinks he's hurt. Right. Um, and if he's hurt, they're in the middle of nowhere. Like, they're screwed. Right. Um, am I allowed to say screwed? Yeah. Okay, we can say whatever we want. Okay. Um, <laughs> and that, like, generally things are okay, but by creating that compression mm. and then releasing it, I think right. it's priming you to be more susceptible to future instances he's going to give you. Right. So he's, like, he's training you to experience the rest of the story by using this first part. Right. It's sort of like the power of suggestion. And he he does a good job starting from a place that you're totally comfortable with. Oh, this is a good point. Um, this is what I notice in Lovecraft, because I've read the collected works of Lovecraft. And the story arcs are all really similar. And yet you find yourself inexorably drawn into them, even though you basically know where it's going. And I think that's really brilliant, because he finds where your mindset is, and he presents you with something which totally fits in with your mindset. He gives you a path. Exactly. And then he just takes you one step down there. And you think like, well, I'm basically along for the ride. It's just one step. And then he just methodically steps you one piece at a time all the way into basically the other world, which is pretty amazing. So this is chapter one. We are experiencing it through in what would be the present day for this story, Mm. um, where the author and his buddy are fishing. They find the manuscript. And then... Is there, I, I don't know. We're going to find out if the rest of the story is them reading the manuscript or not. Um, but do you have any final comments on sep- chapter section one? Nope. I'm uh, pumped to hear about the next section where we're going to go. Yeah, it is. Sir, it's a it's a cool interlude. I really yeah. like the level of immersion and I'm, I'm excited to experience it through their eyes. Right. So this is the uh, Book Cult podcast. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We'll see you next week. Make sure to give us a rating. Oh, yeah. That's important. You should rate us that... And write completely ridiculous and awesome reviews. Yeah. Yeah. See you around.